What is life? They say bread is life. And, and I bake bread, 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 <clears throat> and I sweat and shovel this stinking dough in and out of this hot hole in the wall, and, and I should be so happy. Huh, sweetie? Irish, are they? I'm not. I'm part Irish. You're part Irish? German, Irish, Mexican. Half Mexican, the other half German Irish. Oh man, what a combination. What's what was that restaurant? It was called like a, like, a, like an Irish slash Mexican chain. Carlo, Carlos O'Kelly's? Is is that what it was? Is that what is that what was going on there? I've seen it, and and, and it's pretty funny. And, there's another uh, one called there's another one called Jose Malone's. <laughs> Bullshit. I'm looking at it right now. I got it. By the way, there's a there's a Carlos O'Kelly still open for business in Dubuque, Iowa. You know, the the uh, apostrophe between the O and the K in O'Kelly's is um a jalapeno. So they got some some quality branding going on there. It's a jalapeno. Yes. Yes. It's pretty clever. That's not bad. All right, well, happy Mexican Irish Day. Only for me between the three of us. There's nothing Mexican about St. Patrick's Day. Well, most of those assholes drinking outside uh, in the rain, outside of my house right now, uh, they're not all Irish. Most of the people wearing green, they're not Irish. You know, I mean, what the hell does it mean? I'll tell you what it... I don't know where you're going with this. (laughs) St. Patrick's Day makes me ashamed to be white. Uh, There's a few things that make me ashamed to be white, but that's in the top five. Uh, I don't see I don't see any Irish food on the Carlos O'Kelly's menu, so it's strictly Mexican. Why is it called O'Kelly's? I mean, I don't get it. I don't know. It's confusing me. Let's take a look at what's behind Gabe's uh, head today. Gabe, say something. Well, well, let me see what you got. You got Quicksand. The Quicksand Slip vinyl album, whatever you want to say. Which we loved, produced by Stephen Hagler. Uh, and you got the Seven Seconds... It's New Wind on red vinyl. It is New Wind. One of their best. Awesome. You're down with that kind of stuff. I could be. I could be persuaded. Did you uh, end up watching that Salil Moonfry movie last night on on Hulu? I don't have Hulu, so I got to find a way to watch it. I probably could have looked for it on uh, YouTube, but I might enjoy it more than you because I'm more of a 90s kind of uh, fan than you as far as, you know, young Hipster, 90210 kind of stuff. Hipster? 90210 is hipster? Well, Listen, I wouldn't say hipster. I just said I, hipster, but I didn't mean hipster. I, 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 absolutely, <laughs> I absolutely can guarantee that you will enjoy it more than I did. I didn't make it very far. What uh, is the Soleil? Soleil? How do you say her first name? Soleil? Soleil? Otis uh, Soleil? Otis, uh, what is Punky the Brewster. Moon Fry movie? Funky Brewster. Brewster. It's basically Funky Brewster movie? Yeah, she trots out all of her uh, video stuff that she shot back in the day and it's basically her and all of her famous friends uh and then i had to turn it off i was like it's like a documentary why am i watching yeah it's like a documentary and and it's fine it's okay i I don't want to i don't want to talk shit uh uh, you know it's it's her journey i get it i just once uh they show show the kid from 90210 talking about how he grew up 
listening to NWA wanted to make a hip hop record, I said, I, I, I can't do it anymore. I right, have I'll pick to up, go. I'll watch it and I'll pick up where he left off, but uh, it's going to be more interesting to me, I think. Did either of you watch the um, Billie Eilish documentary? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. That's what we were talking about. Oh, are you serious? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Billie Eilish documentary starring Sally on Moonfry. She's playing her in the new movie. No, I haven't watched that. Is that on Apple? That's on Apple, right? I think so. Yeah. I watched the first 10 minutes. That's as far as I made it. I tried to watch that uh, bullshit TV show uh, that's on Apple that everyone's telling me to watch. Ted Lasso. No, it's not for me. Not for it's dumb. I'm done. Uh, did did either of you see any of the Grammys? No. I saw I some see. bits. I saw some bits, but I didn't watch it live. I watched the clips on YouTube. I've seen the the Heim performance, which I thought was Actually, I watched fucking that. awesome. I, that was sounded really cool. That was. I mean, cool. holy was, shit! They're they're pretty uh, exuberant. They're pretty happy about something. Something certainly well, makes them glad to be alive. <laughs> I don't know about happy. The bass player is always making these crazy like monster faces while she plays. Yeah, uh, but she she's like, she, she's uh, kicking those legs up. Yeah, more than uh, I I don't know I don't I don't know who to compare it to. Like uh, Tina Weymouth during the mm-hmm. the Tom Tom Club. Yeah, but the lead, so the lead singer also plays drums sometimes, and she started the song playing drums, and then she it was like a total Sheila E thing. Then she stood up <laughs> and she sang like the second verse, and then the uh, one of the other sisters sat in on drums for her for a little while, and then they switched mm-hmm. places again, and she played drums for the. It, it was, I, I was Gabe and I loved it. I don't know, Scott. You need to get on the bandwagon, man. Yeah, I guess so. Or or I can just be okay be fine <laughs> yeah, okay. and you know I, I, I can get the joy that you get out of watching it uh it sounds sounds great um what's his name mm. was watching from the wings uh harry styles oh cool. <laughs> and, uh, um and um what's his name who was the host trevor noah oh my favorite i didn't understand the setup because that's the only part of it i saw but it seemed like the entire cast and crew were on stage like there was maybe no audience it was just people on this big stage like a sound yeah, stage think, is that what you thought Gabe I think there's something going on it kind of felt like a, almost like a hardcore show like the, the other band members and other crew were on the side and, and you're just watching it and being part of the show but it was, it was weird that's what I was going to say I was going to say Heim seems like the new Circle Jerks that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say I, I couldn't quite hit on it are you still doing your podcast coffee? Yeah, but uh, it's... Uh, Spiked? I, I don't know if it's taken yet. I, I, I don't know if it's taken me in its arms. Um, it's always... the Like on this day, I, I do my preparation and I listen to music. And today I was listening to Josh's music and listening to... And reading a bunch of articles and... And I'm like, yeah, I got all day to do this. From the minute I wake up, I start doing this. And then, uh, you know, an hour before we have to do this, get on with each other on the Zoom, I start freaking out. I realize I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. So I start freaking out and I realize I don't have any coffee. So I went down the street, 
all the coffee places had closed by the time I got to him because it was past six. And what kind of psycho drinks coffee after six? So, so yeah, it, I, I got it. It's, it's there in me cup. But I don't know if it's taken. It sounds like it's taken hold. Am I talking fast? Because I, I, I feel like I'm talking a little fast. Wait, wait. We're, we're supposed to prepare for this? Is that what you're trying to tell me? No, not, not you. That's, oh, okay. that's, that's part of the joie de vivre of the show is that you don't prepare but, at all. That's the joie de vivre. Uh, I mean, and then uh, I prepare too much. And then I, uh, you end up coming out way cooler than I do every episode. So... Uh, it's justice. It feels like justice, doesn't it? <laughs> That's right. Well, it's another episode of uh, the Lifers Podcast. Thanks for uh, tuning in. And I, from the reaction to the last week's episode, it seems like a lot of you might be happy to, to know that this will be a Genesis-free episode. I didn't realize people hated Genesis more than I hated Genesis. But it's, uh, the hate is strong. I mean, I'm old enough to understand that if there is something that angers me so much about Phil Collins, it must be, it must have its mirror image in something about myself. That something I can see it and go, oh, I share the same thing with that asshole. I fucking hate him, you know? So I, I don't want to delve in, into it too much because, uh, you know, I don't want to have a breakthrough right now, but, but there's something about him that's got to be all tied up in my own shit and but uh, you don't you're not old enough to know what that is yet if, if I really wanted to pick at that scab I could probably find out but uh, there's enough scabs this has been a year of scabs I don't think that's one that we need to deal with this year speaking of scabs uh, Ben I, I saw that you got uh, you got the the shot you got you got the shot in the arm. I did, and I was lucky enough to get the. Uh, I was lucky enough to get the Johnson and Johnson, so I'm one and done. One and done. I, and you got? Are you, have you gotten your second dose? No, I just got the first uh, about a week or so ago. Are you guys mm-hmm. looking for this to get the to the shot, or are they finding you? Or how do you find this stuff? I'm I'm in South Carolina, so it's not you know hot on the news about where to get your vaccine right now. Yeah, no, you have to be aggressive about it in Wisconsin. Did you get it through the I, school, I had to do ben? a whole bunch of shit. Hmm? Did you get it through the, the college? I, I mean, I, I, that's how I was eligible. For some reason, uh-huh. since I'm, I'm, I'm on staff in a higher education facility, and I theoretically have interaction with students, uh, I was eligible. Uh, but even right. then, I had to sort of... Uh, sign up for these, fill out these surveys, put myself on lists. And then there was one week where I was like on Walgreens website, like hitting the button every five seconds. A lot of people are doing it through Walgreens, right? Yeah. But I didn't end up getting an appointment through Walgreens. I suddenly got an email like sort of randomly like, Hey, we're giving the Johnson Johnson at the Alliant Energy Center, which is like where I saw Weezer and Tenacious D play one time. Um, But they were, um, and they were like, they have all these appointments and I grabbed one. How did you how did you hook up with your shot there, Scott? Uh, through working with uh, this this uh, nonprofit that I work with with kids here in town, and uh, they gave me a code, and I went there, and you know all the stuff that I had, they didn't even really care about. They're like, yeah, yeah, you can put that away. You know, you're on the list. We see that you're on the list, so just come on in. All they really cared about was getting shots in arms, uh, 
which I thought was cool. You know, yeah, uh, they were playing tech, techno music in there. People were kind of happy and it was, it was a festive atmosphere, almost like a club that, you know, a very exclusive club that you can't get into like that new South Park episode. But they sent me over to this guy and I sit down and he seemed like he was, uh, he was like an off-duty policeman doing this for a little extra scratch. Uh, no pun intended. And I, I sat down and he had put my arm up and uh, he goes, yeah, don't worry about this. You know, we'll get your shot and then you'll be on your way. You can do whatever you want. He's like, well, maybe not whatever you want. And I go, yeah, but a little bit more, you know. And he says, well, to tell you the truth, I don't think it's going to make a difference. Uh, you know, I, it's already in us. It's not going to make one bit of difference. But as long as it makes all these people feel better. He goes, here comes the <laughs> shot. And I'm like, whoa, are you supposed to be saying these things? I mean, where's your bedside manner? I mean, <laughs> you can't tell somebody that and then just stick them with a shot. I was like, is this a placebo? What's going on here? So I was pretty freaked out. And I remember I was emailing back and forth with you, Ben. And I was kind of like, I don't know what just happened, but I'm a little freaked out. That guy kind of yeah. fucked me up. Yeah. But I'm hope, I hope you're over it now and excited to get the second dose. I'm over it. Later on that night, my arm hurt, so I knew it wasn't a placebo. Uh, Is that how you know the difference? That's not. They still make the placebo hurt, don't they? There's no fucking placebo. Calm down, everybody. <laughs> Let's not spread that. <laughs> Listen, I, I'm not saying that there was a placebo, but I'm saying just before I sat down, <laughs> this guy started spouting some uh, anti-COVID bullshit, and then he stuck my arm, and I was like... Who's side is he on? You're not supposed to do that. <laughs> well, the lady who uh, was going to inject me uh, asked me which arm I wanted it in, and I said, "Well, I'm left-handed," and that seemed like th- I was. Do- this my thing was like a drive-through, like you're sort of in an airplane hangar. They didn't want me to get out of the car, so I'm like, I'm in the driver's seat. So I'm like, I guess give it to me in my left arm. And she said, "Are you left-handed?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "Oh no, no, just." swivel out of the car and I'll get you in your right arm. And I said, okay. And she said, what are you going to do right after this? And I said, well, right after this, I'll, I'm probably going to cry. Cause I was like, I'm going to pull into this waiting area and I'm going to be so relieved. But I said, but I didn't say that part. I said, I'm going to pull into the waiting area and I'll probably cry. She's like, Oh honey, it's not going to hurt. It doesn't. And I'm like, no, no, it's, I'm not worried about it hurting, but I could not convince her that that's not what I meant. Like, and so for the next two minutes, she was like, it's okay. It's come. She was like, it was five years old. She's like, okay, count to three, take a deep yeah. breath. I'm going to, I'm like, oh, Jesus fuck. Why did yeah. you ask me the question? Your eyes gave you away. Yeah. She could, she could <laughs> yeah. see the fear in them. Yeah, part of me thinks that the guy that was saying that to me was just fucking with me. But even still, I'm like, I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to be doing that. Um, no, that's not who you want in that facility. <laughs> I mean, at first I liked him. I was I, I was all fine with it. And then just before he stuck me, he says, yeah, this is not going to matter. Have fun. In that respect. <laughs> if, if you really wanted to get into something right here. Uh, are you running around uh, telling people that uh, Harlem Nights is good? I just watched it for the first time, and I thought it was yeah. good. When was it the last the first time, time you'd you ever seen it? it? I'd seen bits and pieces on cable, probably. I mean, I don't know. I remember seeing it when it came out, and I remember right. being 
fairly horrified at the scene where Eddie Murphy punches Della Reese in the stomach. And I think I turned on it from that point on. Yeah, it plays really well now. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. I'll, here's I'll what I'll say about Who knows? It. Maybe after all these years, I've grown into the kind of guy that can appreciate the joy of watching Eddie Murphy kick the shit out of an old lady. Maybe what that's it, what it what it felt like to what me. My first of all, journey has been right. First of all, she's his equal. She he he doesn't win that fight until he takes out a gun and shoots her in the foot. So hey, don't ruin it for Gabe. I'm sorry. I'm probably not gonna watch the movie, but I did watch Coming to America finally and Coming to America too. I couldn't finish the second one because it was so bad, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I am not down with the the people constant talking shit about America. I mean, coming to America. (laughs) Constant talking shit about America. (laughs) The constant talking shit about coming to America, too. It's like, what did you people expect? Well, I I tried watching the first one recently in preparation, and I thought that one sucked and remembered thinking it was (laughs) bad at the time. (laughs) This is my... I know I'm in the minority here, but I'm now saying that it's... Um, Harlem Nights and Norbit. Those are my two fucking Eddie Murphy movies from this day. What's next? A critical reappraisal of Boomerang? (laughs) That's not a, that's not a terrible Eddie Murphy movie either. It's not a good Eddie Murphy movie. Well, I don't, Hey, look who it is. (laughs) It's Josh Caterer. Hello. How are you? I am well. Good. How are you? For those of you who can't see, what you're hearing is Josh Caterer, the singer and the guitarist for the Smoking Popes. Hello, yeah. Josh. <laughs> you didn't have uh, St. Patrick's Day plans today, did you? Uh, no, I did Good. not. Well, I mean, this is my St. Patrick's Day plan. Good. That's how we know you're cool. If you yeah. got plans. Oof. No, 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 no. But you do have plans for a new record called The Hideout Sessions. It's coming out April 9th? No, it's coming out March 26th. What day is today? Uh, 17th. It's St. Patrick's Day. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So was it supposed to come out April 9th? Listen, I've been trying to find stuff on this record all day, and I I can't find a track listing. I can't get any real wow. info on when it's supposed to come out. I thought I nailed down the April 9th, but I didn't. If only, if only you knew somebody who had some inside information about this album that I you could have called or texted to get this uh, stuff you were looking for. I didn't want to bother you. I wanted to sound like I knew what I was talking about and what I was doing. And that's the thing I'm learning about this podcast is every time I try to do that, it just sucks and crashes and burns. Nobody's buying it. No, 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 not at all. That's not the reason why people like you, Scott. It's not because they think you know what you're doing. Oh, yeah? What, what have, is it then? You have other magnetic qualities. Oh, oh, good. All right. Well, that brings us to our regular segment. What does the guest like about Scott? Go ahead, Josh. <laughs> um, he has magnets in his pants. He has magnets in his pants. He has like sort of a controlled recklessness, which I think appeals Ooh. to a lot of people. Okay. Anyway, so your record comes out on the 26th of March, and it's available for pre-order right now. Yes. And you make for, this record Pravda, with... Chicago's own Pravda record. Pravda. Now, that's a good label. I like that label. I'm excited to finally be working with them. I have, I have admired that label for many, many years. Going all the way back to... Um, 
you remember the band Green? Yeah. Uh, they uh, some of their early stuff was on Pravda, so that's when I found out about Pravda was through listening to like Green's first couple of records. Yeah, it seems like they put out a lot of comps that I had too. None of them, I can't think of any of them, but but yeah, Green totally. And John Green's Sin- a good band. Yeah, and you got John San Juan on this record. Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah, John John is a delight. And he can can play. He's pretty good at playing, isn't he? He's real good at playing. As long as it's upside down. Yes. Um, He does that because he doesn't want anybody to to steal his riffs. So, like, you can't look at his fingers and see what he's doing because it's all reversed. But <laughs> that's so right. he, he's playing bass and John Perrin is playing drums. John uh, Perrin plays with NRBQ. Yes. All right. Now, how did that happen? How did how did that I happen? I know. How is I mean, I you know, we all know how we play with John San Juan. You know, we, we go to his house and knock on the door. Yeah, but yeah. how did you find out where the drummer of NRBQ lived? Um, <laughs> I've known John Perrin for a long time because um he used to be in a band called the love shots that played with the the smoking popes many times and so he's just kind of a a guy that uh you know a music scene acquaintance that uh that i had contact with and uh i saw in him Chicago. play also with a band called the western elstons um, so he lives in chicago he lives in Chicago and he just sort of is always playing in bands. And so, you know, I've seen him play many times and he's just great, just a great, great drummer. And I've always wanted to play with him. So then last summer when everything was shut down, all the Pope's gigs got canceled. I just got itchy, you know, for yeah. something to do. And I called him up and, and was like, can we figure out some way to, to play together? Like we get like, a, is there a, a practice space that's big enough to where we could have social distancing? And uh, he was like, yeah, I, I have access to a pretty large practice space right now where he could do that. And so then I said, what if we got John San Juan involved? And he said he thought that would be a good idea. And that the wasn't two of them a deal had not played. Well, they, they played music together once in a Beatles cover band. But um, <laughs> you would think from hearing them play that, that, that they've been a, a rhythm section like for years. You know, they just they're just locked in. Anything you put John on, it's, it's kind of uncanny. It's like it, it's sickening. And, and the upside down stuff only makes it even more uh, <laughs> vertigo inducing. And then you got Max Crawford playing on it. Yeah, right? he played on a couple of tracks. Yeah. Wait, so you've been, uh, Andy Gerber did not record this, did he? You did this at the hideout and- We did it at the hideout, but Andy was there um, supervising and then he took the files back to Million Yen and he mixed it there. Okay. You bet. You've been kind of working with him all year in this year of the COVID. I um, have. Yeah. Right, and you, oh yeah, and I saw you at the studio that one time. Right when it all started, I think you were there with your your son. Was my son there? Yeah, I, think I so. brought in my my son and my daughter over the course of the the COVID shutdown year. I think uh, your son was wearing a really cool rock shirt, but I can't remember what cool band was on the cool rock shirt. Yeah, he's got some cool rock shirts. I think it was, uh, it was, 
some 41 or something like that. <laughs> it wasn't some 41. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. But I saw you and that was, that was weird. I mean, it was great to see you, but I, I didn't know how, how close to come to you. Yeah. Or how long to linger or how much to say. Um, but, you know, we've always wondered that about each other. Yes, <laughs> we have. <laughs> yes. So you've been over there. You've been over there a lot, like every weekend doing something for your church. Yeah. Yeah, because um, I, I work at a church. I'm the music director at a, at a church in out here in the town where I live in suburban Chicago. And um, so then when everything shut down, our church shut down. And so yeah. we had to, uh, we had to switch to entirely online services, yeah. which we hadn't done before. And so instead of live streaming the service, which I've seen, you know, a live stream could go either way. And a lot of times the, the, neither the audio nor the video is up to, up to snuff. So we decided to do services that we, uh, film and record during the week and then like edit them together and mix them. And I, I worked it out where I would, I was always coming into million yen and, and having Andy Gerber, like mix the stuff. And I'm like adding additional instrumentation to it, to fill it out. And so I, I got to have a studio session with Andy like every week for like about six months. And it was, it was a beautiful thing. And it was, it was like the only thing I did yeah. during COVID, you know, lockdown. Like, and we just, I had this, this sort of agreement with Andy where it's like, if either of us, you know, had any exposure to anybody or if we were feeling any symptoms, we would let each other know. And while we were there, we would like try to stay away from each other. But um, I, I think that those, I can't speak for Andy, but for me, like those, that weekly studio session was like the only thing that kept me sane for like several months. Yeah, I'll bet. I mean, I thought this this record that's coming out was a culmination of those sessions before I found out uh, that it was all from the hideout. You and I should talk more, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I can clear up a lot of these problems for you. Yeah, <laughs> you could. Yeah, you probably could. You probably could. So, I mean, the only thing I don't even know what's on the record. What's on this record? Because the only thing I could find was the video of uh, I Need You Around. Right. The record is. OK, there, there's 10 songs on the record. And six of them are covers of uh, older kind of, you know, songs from the the golden era of songwriting, like like Frank Sinatra type songs, like like we do. The American Songbook. The American Songbook, the great yeah. American Songbook. Like we do um, My Funny Valentine. We do What Kind of Fool Am I? We do I Only Have Eyes for You, you know, songs like that. Yeah. Six of those are like those kind of songs. And then four of them are Pope songs, but I decided to try try to treat those like cover songs and do completely reinterpreted versions of them. Sort of in the spirit of taking those those other old songs and reinterpreting them, I wanted to reinterpret my own songs and put them side by side and with with those other songs to show some like continuity between them. So you've got like a way slower version of Need You Around. You've got like uh, some of our other songs like in different time signatures than they were originally, you know, 
Right. When you write a song, there's like a thousand ways you can approach it. Right. But I mean, the, putting those songs together isn't that weird. I mean, to some people, it might be seem like a weird thing, but it isn't. I mean, you were one of the first people that I knew of that I knew in the area or anywhere that was that seemed to be have like sort of a classic sense of songwriting where you where you were incorporating those songs into Pope songs. Um, and I think everybody seems to be doing it now, but back then, I think you were the only one that was doing that. I mean, I think it's, I was, I, it stems from the fact that I was listening to a lot of things that, uh, a lot of other people in, in the genre weren't listening to. I just don't know if a lot of people in punk bands are like actually studying the music of, you know, Irving Berlin and. Lyra Gershwin and things like that. So uh, I don't know. That's always been kind of a source of frustration to me to like, you know, go on tour with like punk bands, especially if they're younger guys. And like the only thing they ever listen to is, is other punk music. It's like, they don't know. They just don't even know about the, the older stuff. And it's like, wow, you know, if you're if you're an artist, I, I I would think that you you would be inspired to to kind of uh, embrace the history of your craft. I mean, there's a lot of rich stuff there. Um, you know, I mean, if you're going to be a filmmaker, you would you would be sure to maybe start by watching some things that were older than like the '90s. Right, right. I mean, but was there a point where you were kind of like? Like those influences that maybe you had, you you had to kill them for a while, and it was only punk rock, or was the the influences always able to survive within that thing? Within the influences punk rock? were always surviving alongside punk rock, so it always just seemed like there's got to be some way to bring these things together. Right. You know, like I, I mean, it's like if only like if only the Dead Kennedys had like covered songs by Cole Porter. Like that would be a good record. That's sort of like, thus the Popes were born. So that was the concept of the band. I mean, is is that like, like say the Ramones, the concept was, the Ramones started as a concept with the punk rock mixed with the Beach Boys and 60s girl groups. Did you start the Popes as a concept of, of, you know, Irving Berlin mixed with punk rock? Um. No, no, that sort of came into it once we were rolling. I think we sort of realized that that's, that that's what was happening. <laughs> you right. know, just because like in the songwriting, it was sort of evident that the songwriting had more of a show tunes quality to it. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, just, let's just embrace that and, and play it up. Did that start with I Need You Around? No, I, it started with Let's Hear It For Love, which was okay. on our first record, which um, that was the first, like if you listen to our, the stuff that we recorded before that, we we released a few EPs, like Seven Inches before that. Mm-hmm. And like my vocal style is a little more like shouting. Yeah. Um, I didn't really bring in the vibrato until the first full length studio album, which is called Smoking Popes Get Fired. And on that record, we do... Uh, Let's Hear It For Love, which was the first time in the studio I decided to really 
uh, kind of exaggerate the vibrato. Let's hear it for love. Nah. And like, I would, I, I remember the first take I did of that vocal, like I just started cracking up and like the, the rest of the band, everybody was just like laughing. So I had to start because it seemed funny. Right. Um, but then I was like, no, I'm going to get all the way through this. And then I started, once I got over laughing at it, it became just part of what I do, which I kind of, I'm halfway convinced that a lot of art is like that. Like, for example, uh, like pretty much everything that David Byrne has ever done. Right. Started as like, he, there was some late night where he came up with this idea and he cracked himself up. Like, what if I put on a giant suit that like I could wiggle around in and it looked like the suit was like 10 sizes too big for me. Right. And then he was like, what if I sing a bridge in French? Yeah. Like these are all, he's just kidding at first, but then he does it. If you can do it with a straight face, then you're a genius. Were you also looking to like Elvis Costello and Marcy, who I think were doing those kinds of things back? Like Elvis did a version of My Funny Valentine, and he was kind of famous for kind of crooning, especially live. And Marcy seems like more of a crooner than like a punk shouter. Right. Uh, yeah, definitely heavily influenced by both of those guys. And the... Um, Elvis Costello version of My Funny Valentine, that's the first time I ever heard that song. Yeah, me too. And then discovered that, um, you know, there were all these versions of it. Like it was something that, you know, Sinatra did it, uh, Ella Fitzgerald did it, uh, Nat King Cole did it, all the greats. Um, so Costello, like, there was something about the sens sensibility of, of Costello where he was plugged in to that older generation of songwriters. And he was bringing that um, into his songwriting. You can even hear it on like this year's model and you know all that stuff. It's, it's in there a little bit. And then as he progressed in his career, he was more open about it. Yeah. So he's definitely a hero. That makes sense. I mean, there's something about I need you around, and I'm sure you're tired of fucking talking about this song, but I, it, I mean, it immediately caught my ear the first time I heard it, because there was something about the classism, classism, is it classicism? Of classicism. The, classicism of the tune and the structure, and then it was mixed with the distorted guitars and the drums, and it was like the first time I heard Radiohead's Creep, you know, it sounded totally modern, but at the same time, it seemed like a song that you've been listening to for years. And that that familiarity mixed with the newness was like just so striking. And it was the same thing with I Need You Around. It was like, you're like, the first time I heard it, I was like, I've never heard anything like this. Well, um, I think <laughs> with, the, with, that, with that particular song, it's actually kind of inspired by... Um, the melody to the song, What Kind of Fool Am I?, which is uh, like the biggest version of that is by Sammy Davis Jr. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of fool am I who never fell in love? Like there's the cadence of it. 
if I could see into your heart, like it's, it's similar. I, I sort of wanted a song that felt like that. So I wasn't copying it, like ripping it off exactly, but it was something that would sort of achieve the same feel as that melody, but new. So like the, in, I don't know. I feel like with a lot of our stuff, a lot of stuff I've written is like, it is intentionally supposed to feel like an old song. Right. But with the sonics against that, I mean, you were aware of. Yeah. The things that are different are, are like superficial. Yeah. If you sort of propel the music underneath it enough with enough energy, it'll create this like, like you said, tension. Like, like something that I just found out about this. I can't remember where I heard it. It was somebody talking about um, like the, these early rock and roll recordings, um, like on like a lot of Chuck Berry's recordings, like the, it was like one of these drummers, like one of these like famous old drummers was talking about this, this thing that they used to do on these Chuck Berry recordings where like a, the guitar part is playing in like four, four. Mm-hmm. And then the drums are doing like a swing time. Right. Um, and, but when you put those two things together, it creates this like baked in sense of like tension that's pulling against each other. It's like the song is like pulling against itself. Um, and that, that, that created like, that's what rock and roll was when they first invented it. And I, I never consciously noticed that until then I went and put on a Chuck Berry record. And I was like, yes. Yeah. That's they'd what have, they're doing. <laughs> the one guy is playing four, four, the other guy's playing swing time. And they'd have samba parts in it. And it, like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And you just mash it all together. And as long as you're playing at the same speed, they don't have the same time signature. Um, and it's nuts, but like ways that you can create tension like that, that's sort of, you know, if you can do it, it, it hits people on an emotional level that they might not be fully cognizant of unless they're a musician such as yourself. Yeah, but I think the key is probably uh, the way Chuck Berry is able to get away with that is the humor that he brings to it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you bring the, that same humor. Um but it, it's it's this line between humor and being 100% sincere, which I, I think Morrissey was doing with the Smiths and a lot of his solo stuff, too. Yeah, I mean, I've, I can't remember where, but somewhere I, I, I heard a quote from him in some interview where he said that a lot of his uh, a lot of his lyrics uh, were intended to to um, amuse himself, and he doesn't know if anybody else gets the joke. But yeah. like even <laughs> even his stuff that is sad, and there's there's a lot of kind of depth and and darkness and heaviness to a lot of his lyrics. But there always is that that wit in there. There yeah. has to be, you know, if the, if you're if you create something that's totally devoid of wit then it's not even worthwhile. Right. right. Even but, there's a light that never goes out is like the ultimate sort of goth depression anthem uh, where, you know, which people 
use as their Bible, I feel like. They take it really seriously, but it's also very, very funny in a very over-the-top, melodramatic way as far as, you know, yes. the lyrics. It, it, it works on both levels, which is really cool. Exactly. And stuff does the same thing. Exactly. And, it, and, it's, and it, both levels have to be, uh, you have to believe in both levels equally for it to work. Otherwise, it's just snarky bullshit. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, like, like I, my favorite record of yours is the, I mean, I'm a concept record guy, so it's probably not much of a, a surprise, but this is only a test. And that whole record sort of works both those levels where like, you know, you're in high, it's a high school record. It's a concept record about being in high school, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And so, I mean, it only works. So you've got one level of, of where it's funny that you're talking about being in high school. You've got a song, which is probably the band's finest moment. I've got mono, you know, you've got songs like that, but it's also, uh, balanced with like some real real emotion and and i don't think you give either side short shrift you know and that's why it's such an amazing record wow thanks um thanks scott it's really delightful to hear you speak in such glowing terms oh well about my about my work Okay, since but and also uh, you nobody ever brings up that record. I don't know why. It's just like n- nobody who I'm talking to ever really seems interested in that particular it's, record. It's fucking but brilliant. Since we're talking about it, I have a question for you. I want to get your professional opinion Uh-oh. as a songwriter because okay. there's a song on that record called "Excuse Me, Coach." Yes. Um, Great title. Thanks. But okay, when we're, I wrote the song and uh, my brother Matt, who plays bass in the band, he was like, I, he was like, I, this is a good song. I like the song. He's like, I feel like though the line in the, in the chorus where you say, uh, where you talk about doing push ups, how could I do another mm-hmm. push up? now it's too overtly about being in gym class it's too it's too silly like if you change that line then the whole rest of the song would be this more like sort of universal song about heartache and and yearning and everything and so that he's like that song makes it like it's too specific to the situation where it makes it where now most people can't relate to that song anymore and I was like, I see, I see what you're saying. Well, and, I, but, but the the fact that it is that I'm that I'm mentioning like doing push-ups at that point in the song, like is what it's what makes it funny. It's what it's what creates that tension. It's like that's the point of the song is that he's it's so it's so like melodramatic that it seems like sentiments that could only be expressed by like uh you know a person like a poet or something except or a teenager. For, then you find out that he is in gym class yeah <laughs> talking to his coach about right. not wanting to do push-ups like that's the point 
Right. So like I, I kept it, but then sometimes I listened to that and I was like, I wonder if he was right. If I had taken out the stuff about running a mile and, and doing pushups, like it could have been, you know, more for the ages. Well, I mean, was the record not hatched as a concept record about a guy in high school? It was, right? That was It the- was, but I think what he was saying is that like that song has potential to like to to yeah. to have have life outside of the concept of this album. Yeah, I say fuck that, especially when you're dealing with a a concept record and you know sanding down the specifics of a song is always a mistake because the things that you think will stop people from you know universally getting it those are always the best parts and those are always the parts that are the most universal i mean everybody's had to do a push-up and didn't want to do another push-up so you know it's like i mean these kind of lovesick songs are your bread and butter and 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 you've you've got to you've you've got to figure out you personally have got to figure out a way to make them fresh every time you know you you trot another one out and i i think the push-up line is not only does it conceptually fit with the record and make it great it's even if it wasn't in a record about that it would make a great standalone song about that you know i mean at the end of the day that's probably the line that people are going to talk about the most. Okay. Well, I feel much better. Thank you, Scott, for being on my side. And I will take this back to my brother and tell him after all these years, he is officially wrong. You know what? I can tell him. I, I, I can tell Matt myself. <laughs> How are your brothers? Uh, they're doing well. Um, you know, I mean, we haven't... Uh, we don't see each other as often as we did when we were like touring together, but yeah. uh, but they're both they're both doing well. Um, uh, my brother, uh, my brother Eli, is going to be a dad pretty soon. Really, the first time? Yeah. Wow. So that's big, exciting news in the caterer family. Of your brothers, uh, which one um, shall we say is the coolest? Uh, that that would be me. I'm okay. <laughs> Perfect answer. Did you see that uh, Bee Gees documentary? No, I heard good things about it, and I'm going to watch it. <sighs> I don't know what to say to you. I thought you were going to see that Bee Gees documentary. It's it's great. You, I yeah. am going to see that Bee Gees documentary. I thought you would have seen it by now. I should have sent well, you a note. <laughs> I'm still, you know, right now I'm I'm binge watching. Uh, through Columbo. So as soon as I get done with that, I'll watch the Bee Gees documentary. Columbo. You're a Columbo man. I'm a Columbo man. Okay. I'm, I'm up to season four now for, wow. about the, for about the sixth time in my life of watching through the entire series. But it gets better every time. Who's your favorite guest villain? Oh, my favorite guest villain might be Ruth Gordon. Oh, shoot. I haven't seen that. Episode. Ruth Gordon rears her ugly like a, head again. That sounds like a masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really good. So you're not a Columbo guy? I'm more of a McLeod guy. Are these mutually exclusive? Like you're either a Columbo guy or a McLeod guy? No, you can just be an NBC Sunday night mystery guy in general. You could be McMillan and wife and Columbo and McLeod. You could take it all in. You've got to choose. I like okay. McMillan, but his wife, I'm not a big fan of. So in that Bee Gees documentary, uh, 
uh, Noel Gallagher is in it, and he's talking. There was a line he's talking about what makes the Bee Gees great, and he's talking about how if you want to be uh, uh, Buddy Holly, you know, you can go to a music store, you can buy a Strat and a Fender amp, and you can try to sound like Buddy Holly, but you can't buy anything in a music store to sound like the Bee Gees because it's the brothers that make that sound. If if you had if you had seen the movie, and uh, based on my excellent resuscitation of that line, uh, how would you put that into the Pope's the, the the Pope's the brothers Pope's? You know, people do talk about this this concept of blood harmonies, which yeah. usually is in reference to uh, singing, but. Um, I think it it could also apply to strumming patterns. Yeah, <laughs> I think years ago, the probably the first time, and I don't want, know when it was, but like the whenever was the first time we saw our our band our band playing, like on on video. Somebody right. took video of it and we watched it, and we just noticed that like our our hands were like they lo- all looked exactly the same when we we're strumming. Right. You know, wing, ding, 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 yeah. like just they like, do that, and I don't know. We didn't do that on purpose. It just happened. Yeah, we it's from the same way. It's pretty weird to see that. Like you, you guys will come out and you watch your right hand, and it's and it's like you're seeing triple, which I usually am by the end of your sets. But <laughs> right away, it looks like that. It's kind of freaky. That's why I always, I always like to talk to you after the show. <laughs> Nobody likes to talk to me after the show. I do, Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you had a quarter for how many times I've come up to you after a show and said you sing like an angel, how many quarters would you have? Oh, I, I would probably have fifty cents <laughs> because that can't be right. No, I feel like. Uh, I don't know. This is weird to confess, but like, I mean, okay, we've known each other for years. Yeah. We've had many conversations. Mm-hmm. We even have toured together. Many Not only times. our fans, but we we got into a car, just the two of us, and did an acoustic solo tour for like a week. That's right. We we got we got in your car, or was it Steph's car? Was it yours, or was it? Uh, was it red? You know what? I remember a lot of things. I don't remember the color of cars. If it was red, then it was it was my wife's car. Yeah. But okay, but I still, after all that time, I always uh, uh, there's this little part of me that just that, does Scott even like me? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not. I love you. I'm not totally sure. And so there, but there have been a couple of times, and this always is at the end of the evening after you've been enjoying yourself for a while, where you, you, you'll kind of open up and, and, and show some warmth and say some affirming things. And I'm like, he does like me. So <laughs> then I feel really good because, I don't know, you're, 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 you're sort of an intimidating guy, Scott. Well, I feel pretty intimidated by you. Like, you know, because uh, uh, you're much more reserved than I am, I, I think. And... And I'm more reserved than most people are. Yeah, well, there you go. But, uh, but you know, it's sometimes I can be talking about something, get very animated about it, and I'll look at you for a response, and you'd be like, uh-huh, yeah. And I'm like, ah, oh, he thinks I'm an asshole. I got to get out of here. 
All right, so this is the key to our relationship is we both think that the other hates us. No, this the intimidation thing goes back to, I remember when we were uh, doing that acoustic tour together and we started talking yeah. about movies. I remember we were specifically talking about Westerns mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, sort of like the, 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 the Clint Eastwood Westerns Sergio Leone. Um, and I don't know. I think this was the first time that you and I ever had specifically discussed films. And I was like, okay, here's a guy that also loves films. And, um, and about three minutes into this conversation, I realized I was out of my depth. <laughs> and I, 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 I was like, I wanted to retreat because I was just like, I can't, I'm not, I can't keep up with this guy. <laughs> you started throwing out pieces of information about like, you know, the cinematographers and even the key grips of these <laughs> films. And I was just like, I don't, with most people, I feel like I know just slightly more about film than they do. Uh-huh. But here's a guy who is light years beyond me. I probably started talking about Randolph Scott and Anthony Mann Westerns, probably. probably. That's, that's probably what happened. You're like, wait, hold on. I thought we were just talking about Italians. So then I was like, this guy thinks I'm an idiot. <laughs> no, no, no. Your proper response should have been, this guy thinks he's better than me. That right. would have been the proper response. Well, that tour was fun. I mean, because... Yeah. It, we were in a car. We were in your wife's car, and you know we were, you were doing all the driving, and I was doing all the passengering, and we were like sitting there right next to each other, uh, and that was the tour. And I think the the people <laughs> at at Flower thought it might be funny to have us go out together, like you know the the Saint and the Sinner tour or something, you know. Right. Right. Uh, so I learned. <laughs> I learned some valuable things on that tour, some of which have stayed with me ever since. And one of those things, this is a life lesson that I learned from you. You always have to bring your own hot sauce. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is key. This is yes. key to life because nine times out of 10, you will not be satisfied with the hot sauce selection that is afforded to you at any establishment. Now, if you can live on Crystal and Tabasco, Godspeed, but if you want something better, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to come loaded for bear. Yeah. Well, Wait, I am I understanding the... this correctly? Hang on a second. You guys yeah. will bring your own hot sauce into legit restaurants, not just like uh, sneak it into a Taco Bell or something. I don't think I never Josh did. will. I never did that until I toured with Scott and I saw him bring his own hot sauce. He has a little leather carry. <laughs> for his little bottles of hopping. Is that is that like bringing in your own drink to, to a bar? I mean, is that frowned upon like that, or, or is it okay at some of these places to bring your own sauce? Do they get, you know? It, it, I always do it undercover, you know. I, I I take the hot sauce out of my hot sauce holster and, you know, <laughs> do it when they're, they're turned away. Wow. Yeah. Have you ever gotten flack for that? No, because... Uh, they don't ever see it. I, I'm really good at it. Um, not, not that I need to ever be caught, 
you know, I, I didn't want to be caught in the first place. So I made sure that I was never caught in the first place or else they're just so embarrassed by it. They're like, this guy brought in his own hot sauce. Just let him go. You know, don't even talk to this guy. You also, another very memorable thing about that tour is that you had a recording. It was like on a CD. Yes. And it was just Paul Stanley's stage banter. Right. (laughs) From between the songs. It didn't have any Kiss songs on it. No, no. It was just, it was just Paul Stanley screaming, uh, I heard Cleveland likes to party. Yeah. Paul Stanley raps. Yeah. You know, you know who made that CD? No. John San Juan. He did? Yeah, wow. He, he had all, he's, I got to give you the CD that I put together because we were doing Kiss uh, later on that month at Double Door. Oh, okay. And so I had to learn all of his stuff. And I was like, hey, Josh, I got to listen to this. He goes, great, put it in. And every day we'd, you know, be not rolling with laughter, but just laughing, listening to this stuff. It was perfect. The best one was the one where Paul Stanley goes, I know what you're thinking. You're not, you don't want to be one of the, you know, the, the uncool folks who gets up and goes, woo, and claps your hand. And then you look to the left and then you look to the right and you realize that you're uncool. I don't know, something like that. But he was like, I want to be one of the cool people. But he's really getting inside of our heads there, isn't he? Yeah. Well, when I, I know that sounded more like the old guy on Family Guy than it it did Paul Stanley. Sounded a little like Michael Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) So, Gabe, do you remember that uh, first tour we did with the Smoking Popes? Uh, You asked me, what year was it? 97. I thought so. I mean, I remember the show in DeKalb for some reason, and... You know, I was tour managing the guys at the time, and, and, you know, because it was a hometown kind of show, DeKalb's pretty close to Chicago. Uh-huh. You know, Smoking Popes had a, a nice following as well, and, and it was just a big, a big show. And it was, they had everybody standing up front in front of them, because I think they were opening up. And I was like, wow, these guys got a big, big following. And then I remember listening to the band, the Smoking Popes, and thinking, holy cow, this is so catchy. This is so hooky. I, I cannot believe I haven't heard these songs before. But I have, you know, it's one of those bands where I always said to myself, why are these guys not bigger? That's what I always said to myself. And I said that to Scott today. So, I mean, yeah. Well, by the way, Gabe, stories, bands but, love to hear that. No, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> why aren't you bigger? No, no, no I mean, I, people say that about local age. You know, why aren't you headlining? The show and all that yeah, stuff? I know. That's how I know bands love to hear that kind of thing. <laughs> it's better than when people say, I know why you're not bigger. <laughs> No, but yeah. I, I, well, it's, it's better than it's better than people saying, "Why are you this big?" Yeah, that's that's right. But I remember that show because every time I heard when you play this song, "I Know You Love Me," and I get to that chorus and I'm like singing along, and I don't even know the words. You know, right. <laughs> I can't believe how hooky these songs are. And I and I played a couple more today. I'm like, oh my god, these guys must have been a lot bigger than I thought. But I, you know, I don't know. I kind of lost track. But ninety-seven, ninety-eight. You know, we're we're doing those shows, and then you did the shows with Scott. It's it's just uh, these you fit right in with with these bands that are a lot bigger, and I just don't understand why why that is. This is this is the entire appeal of the Smoking Popes is that all of our uh, all of our fans 
have the sense that they're that they're in on something mm. because we're not bigger. And if right. we got if we got more successful, it would that would ruin it. Well, is is there something to that, Josh? I mean, like, because your songs, like the songs on the last Pope's record are just as good. Like when when you want something on the last record is just as good as any song you've ever written. Now, if you were bigger, would you still be writing songs this good? Or would you be resting on your laurels and saying, we're just going to put out a record so we can go out on tour? What What is it that keeps driving you to write songs that are just as good as anything in your catalog? Thanks, Scott. Um, I don't know. That, that that's, uh, that's an interesting kind of philosophical question because, like, the, the thing about our band, with the exception of like a brief period in the 90s when we were, when that's what we did for a living. And we had yeah. a, when we, we had a, a, a deal with Capital and so we, we had to make another record. Uh, aside from that, you know, handful of years, we've never been in a position where we have to make another record. Mm-hmm. Um, we've always been like, holding other jobs and the the record thing is just kind of like um something that we're doing you know i guess on the side is what you would call it but like when when we want to like the the if like we've we've had the luxury of like being able to wait until the songs just start popping out you know so you i i don't like i've never been like man, I have to write two songs this week, you know, because of contractual obligations. <laughs> like, I just, I've never been in that position. Right. So you just wait. You don't have to force it. It just comes out when it comes out. And when it comes out, it's gold. I much prefer the feeling of having a, a job. Um, and then we're like, I'm supposed to be doing my job. But instead, I'm sneaking off to surreptitiously write songs. There's right. something about the the uh, forbidden nature of secret songwriting that uh, makes it better. It, it just lights a fire under it for me. Yeah, I can see that. But there's a lot of people that do that, that uh, don't write songs as well as you do. So uh, I think that makes some sense. But um, I don't know. We'll, we'll never know, right? I don't we'll know. know. Plus, I feel like it's all it's all uh, relative because, like, and this was funny. Like you and I, um, we we did we did a podcast recently uh, with uh, Louise from uh, Baruch Assault. Yeah, and she made a comment on there about how she has this weird kind of identity crisis where she is walking around feeling like, you know, a failure and like, because nobody knows her work and she's completely obscure and she didn't make it. And then she'll run into somebody who is like completely excited and treats her like she's a celebrity. And she's like, Oh, okay. No, I'm good. Like people do know who, who, who we are. Right. You know? And it's like, it's funny that you would think that a member of Rook Assault would feel 
insecure about that. I mean, they're a pretty well-known band. Right. But it, it just depends on who you compare them to. I, I think no matter what level you're at, there's always the tendency to compare yourself to somebody who's in the next level up, you know, more, more of a household name. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, compared to the Rolling Stones, we're, uh, we're failures, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like, actually compared to a majority of like bands that are out there slugging it out, trying to make it, we've done really well. Right. You know, because like, we have, but there, there is, there is kind of an echelon of bands that, that are where we are that like have enough of a following and enough of a name to like, yeah, we're not gonna, we're not gonna headline, uh, we're not gonna headline Riot Fest, right? But um, we can get on the bill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least you can. <laughs> But, but you know what's interesting and kind of really heartening is to like read mid 70s interviews with John Lennon, say, and like how you read about John Lennon worrying that he's not current enough. And hmm. and you're like, wait a minute, John Lennon is worried about this. And if he's worried about that, then that just gives I, I think should give everybody hope that. But yeah, that, that's, that's, that's not, liberating. Yeah. Like if he's worrying about that, there's no reason why I should even try to worry about it. Right. You know, I heard, yeah, it's like, and I heard, I heard somebody talking about this on a podcast where they were, they were talking about how McCartney some years ago, uh, 10 years ago or whatever, he, he sort of initiated this, this lawsuit or, or like a, not a lawsuit, but like a, a legal attempt to, to change the songwriting credit because on the songs, you know, they're always listed as Lennon McCartney, right. but like some of the songs were mostly written by him and some were mostly written by Lennon. But he wanted to change the ones that were mostly written by him so that it said McCartney Lennon. Right. So that his name was first. Right. I remember that. And it's like, it's like if McCartney, not even McCartney feels secure in his legacy, <laughs> then what what chance do we have of ever approaching anything that would feel like security right so just like forget it just enjoy yourself just have a good time you're nothing but dust in the wind my friend right <laughs> right <laughs> right i mean reading uh, the articles today uh, you know sort of doing my due diligence and research and just going through stuff Going through these reviews and articles, it, it struck me like how much, how many music trends and things that you've gone through. Like you, you'll see an article about you in a magazine and it'll be between an article on Girl Talk and TV on the radio and all these bands that were hipper than we ever were, but certainly way hipper at the time that those articles came out in the mid 2000s. And I mean, was, was there a sense maybe during the mid 2000s where you were kind of like, Oh man, we're nobody that, that you don't even worry about anymore. Like kind of what we're talking about, the Dustin well, Lynn ethos. I've had, I've had these kind of like, there've been these spikes in our career where it's, it's very cyclical and like the nineties where we got signed and all that craziness 
um, or where we were on Q101 all the time. That was a spike. And then, you know, then I, and then we started to come down off of that, but then I quit band and quit rock for a few years. And then when the popes came back in 2005, there was another spike because there was all this like excitement. We hadn't been an active band. We hadn't played, you know, for seven years. And so we did this tour where like all the shows were sold out and everybody was just like, yeah, I can't believe I finally got to see you guys. This is so great. And we just felt like huge rock stars, you know? Yeah. And like, and then we came back the next year and did another tour and came back to those same towns and, you know, people had settled down a little bit. Right. You know, and then we came back a third time and people had settled down even more. (laughs) And so it was like, you start to feel this, this like existential uh, crisis where you're like, Oh, so there was a lot of that enthusiasm was was specific to the circumstances that were happening at that time then. It's not just it's it's not just the nature of of the music that I'm creating. It will will always produce like a frenzy in people no matter what. You know, it is it it depends on a lot of things whether people are going to be excited about it and that's always going to go up and down and I found that like you have to like uh you have to kind of harden your your heart against those fluctuations otherwise otherwise when it when it ebbs you know every time you go back to a a a town and the last time the show was full and this time it's only half full like every time that happens you're gonna you're just going to feel you're just going to die inside and you're going to feel like I'm washed up and there's no, you know, I got to throw in the tile towel. That's it. You know, but then like something will happen to like boost that. So I just feel like uh, you got to get to a place where it's, it's, it's evened out. Do you feel like you're there? Uh, Yeah. I sort of do. And like the, the, the downside of that is like, I mean, what you don't want is you don't want to lose the ability to, to really celebrate any of your successes, mm-hmm. but you have to somehow, you have to get past thinking like if something good happens and you end up playing in front of a thousand screaming people, like you have to immediately let go of any expectation that that's going to be the norm. Right. And that you you have to you have to walk out of the club saying to yourself, I'm going to play to 40 people tomorrow night and it's going to be great. Yeah. I have no problem with that. Yeah. You know, it's very it's like a Zen kind of philosophy that you have to have. Otherwise, like you'll just never be able to survive your own emotional like roller coaster of it. Right. And it's also a, a reckoning within yourself about why you're actually doing this, you know, why why are you why why are you doing this still josh (laughs) because i have to yeah yeah that's it (laughs) don't you feel like you have to Uh, i do yeah yeah but i mean you were able to walk away from it 
for a while or felt like you had to walk away from it for a while. And I never went through that. So, I mean, do you feel like since you were able to walk away from it once, you might, that might happen again? Or have you come to a place where... This, this is, I've, I've been examining that exact question just recently over the last uh, couple of months because, um, because I, I was, I was reflecting on that period where for a, a for a few years, I just totally stopped playing shows. I wasn't in a band and I did that by choice, but that was because of, uh, a great kind of spiritual upheaval that was happening in my life at that time. And like, right. I was focusing on totally life transforming things that were taking place. So I was kind of distracted from whether or not I wanted to play shows, but because I had done that, I figured I was the kind of person who could walk away from it or take it or leave it. And then I was surprised to find over this past year of like having all my shows canceled, like we all do. Mm -hmm. I was surprised to find out how much I miss it. I, I, and just like longing to be able to play shows again, like feeling like some important part of myself is, is like being suffocated and dying because I can't play shows. And I, I, was, I was like, oh, I didn't think that I needed it that much, but I do. Yeah, it's it's weird that everyone's talking about that it's been a year since all the clubs closed down. And if, if I had known that it's it'd be a year later and I'd still be off the road back then, I don't know what I would have done, you know? I mean, the idea of having to to sit on the sidelines for a whole year and knowing that was coming up would have been too much for me to bear, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, you guys did some uh, some outdoor shows, we, right? Yeah, we, we did some drive-in shows. And How were those? It was cool. It was it was cool because uh, I've always you know I love movies, so I've always wanted to play at a drive-in. So in a lot of ways, that was like a dream come true for me and. We'd play these big, long three-hour sets, so we'd get to live out like these sort of... If, if we were Led Zeppelin playing at Madison Square Garden and we were going to play a three-hour set, we would do that kind of set. We'd have an acoustic set in the middle and yeah. all that kind of crap. So it was enjoyable, but, but you know, when everything shut down, I didn't know we were going to do that. You know, I, yeah. I had no idea that we were going to be able to pivot to something like that. Why would you have thought that you like yeah i mean we were all put in this situation where like okay everything i would normally do i can't do so but i gotta do something so you come up with some new thing to do which is how my hideout sessions album was born and that's how you ended up playing at a drive-in movie theater <laughs> Just yeah. wonder though, how is it when when you get done with a song and people are honking? Is that what's? How does that compare to actual applause? Um, you know we we've uh, stru we structure the sets so that there's no there's no pauses between the songs. Uh, cool. So like it's just nonstop noise. So those people out there can do whatever the hell they want to. Like up on stage, we can't tell what's going on out there, and. Uh, you know, if I'm not wearing my glasses on stage, I can't even see them. So when they're that far away, it's like, you guys go on and do whatever the fuck you want. We're, we're just, that's, that's part of the, uh, 
you know, the fun part about volume is, uh, yeah, you know, doesn't matter whether or not they like it. You still, uh, do you still take ginseng before you go on? I don't do the ginseng thing anymore. Uh, we do, uh, we, we've gone to the hard stuff. We take a uh, five hour energies. Oh, right. Okay. Sometimes Chemical. we take a five hour energy and a half and then we're zipping along like the who during their, their speed phase. Okay. And that's a lot of fun. Cause when we, I remember when we were touring in the nineties, you had like this little, uh, you had a bunch of these little glass vials. Right. <laughs> Wait, he, he had his hot sauce holster and then he had his ginseng holster. That's right. Yeah. Gabe was in. Gabe was in charge of procuring those little. I remember vials I trying to find those on the road all the time. That, that wasn't easy. <laughs> Unless you're. Yeah. <laughs> and I asked you about it one time. Like, what? What is in these vials that you're taking? What is this illicit substance? You said it's ginseng. If I take one of these. About you know half hour before the show, it makes me jump around like a little girl. <laughs> a little girl. That's what you said. <laughs> or Paul Stanley. <laughs> yeah. Hey. <laughs> well, Josh, thanks for doing this. It's great My to pleasure, see you. My pleasure, sir. Um, I'm excited that you have a podcast. This is like the sixth episode, right? Yeah, it is the sixth episode. Yeah, we talked about Genesis all episode. <laughs> I'm, less, I'm five. <laughs> Last time on five, yeah. <laughs> never heard the end of it. So this was, this was better. I think it's about time that you had your own podcast. That's that's what's been missing from this world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Another podcast. What this world needs now <laughs> is another podcast. Well, I can't wait to hear the record, and I can't wait to see you play in person. Any any plans to go out? Um, you know what we're gonna do is uh, I think I can go public with this. Uh oh. We're gonna celebrate the release of this. Uh live album by making another one. Ah, I thought you were going to say that uh, you're going to celebrate the re- the 10 year release of this is only a test. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm going to, we're going to celebrate the release of the hideout sessions by making by, another one, by making one called the space sessions. Ooh, you can do one at the space. I do one at space in Evanston. Move nice. it around, move it around a little bit to different clubs. Move it around a bit. Yeah, you know, <laughs> present a moving target. Just a little bit. Move it around. Good. So I, it's probably that'll probably end up happening like in early May is when you would see that happen because we're still getting together the details of it. But um, so are you going to have an for audience? That. We'll play with that some one? of the hideout stuff. We'll have a we'll have a new batch of songs at that show that we're going to record for another album to be released later. Will you have an audience with that one? No, this will be the same thing. It's a virtual show in an empty club that you will watch online. And then by the time clubs open up again, we'll have two albums worth of stuff to play. And then we'll like play in clubs and everybody will have so much pent up energy. They'll be jumping around like little girls. (laughs) There you go with that uh, entrepreneurial punk rock spirit. Yeah, man. Well, it's good to see you. Good to see you too. Thanks for having me on. 
Just wish that I could kiss you while they 